your Bibles to Genesis 27. We're going to be looking at that whole chapter. And as you do that, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do the whole thing. But as when we were growing up, my mother would entertain us young children by doing a little um, a little skit. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. And it went something like this. It was about a damsel in distress, a villain landlord, and then the hero that comes to save the day. And she would say, this is the damsel. I'm not going to do the voice. I know. I, <laughs> I can't pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. I can't pay the rent today. And then the villain would say, you must pay the rent. You must pay the rent. You must pay the rent today. And then it would go back and forth. I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. And then the hero comes and he says, I'll pay the rent. And then the damsel says, my hero. I did the voice for the last one. That was how my mother would entertain us from time to time. We like our heroes strong, and that's what that shows. It just leaves us with the strong hero. We like our heroes beautiful and perfect. We like our heroes wearing white hats going off into the distance. In early years of movies, we see that would be portrayed again and again. Deep down, and that hits a chord for us, because deep down we want that hero, that perfect hero, that strong hero, that unblemished hero, who does ride off into the distance, totally victorious. Yet in many cases, we're so willing to have that, that we, we actually whitewash the character of many people that we worship like that. We ignore their tragic flaws. We omit their indiscrepancies. We overlook parts of their life that don't match up with the image that we want them to have, that we so desperately need. And what is so amazing about Scripture, what I, one of the things I love about God's Word, is that even the people that are held in the highest respect, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, <coughs> David, Moses, all the great people, all their heroes are portrayed as terribly flawed people. John Walton wrote in his commentary, certainly no one can accuse the Israelites of whitewashing their heroes. And that is true of the people we have before us today. Look at, with me at chapter 27, verse 1. God's word says, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me a delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau went into the field to hunt the game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau. Bring me 
game and prepare me a delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for, uh, from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father and eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to his, Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall be, seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food as his father had loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and the smooth parts of his neck. And she put delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac and Jacob said to Jacob, Please come near me, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, then Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of Isaac, his father. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate of it before you came, and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? 
for he has cheated me of these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for his servants. And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break the yoke from your neck. Father God, I pray that you will help me to preach your word clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a saying that every family is dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degrees. Every, every family is dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degrees. This side of glory, I think that that is just a truism. Family functionality is on a sliding scale. Even the healthiest-looking families have their issues, have their resentments, have little picadellos that get under your skin. Well, as we look at Isaac and Rebecca's family on that sliding scale, I would say that they are pretty dysfunctional. Pretty dysfunctional. We have a mother and a father who have clearly taken sides where their children are concerned. We have a husband and wife that have clearly have different plans for their family. And they go behind each other's backs to fulfill them. We have brothers who came into the story with animosity towards each other and leave the story with murderous intent. So what does the Spirit want us to learn from this narrative? Is it What Walter Scott penned, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. Is that what we're supposed to get out of this? Or is it maybe just the the principle of don't lie? Or what about, is it just a cautionary tale where... Communication is concerned between husband and wife. Or is there something more? I think it's this. The Bible presents again and again people who are flawed and fallen. In other words, the Bible presents anti-heroes to us so that we can't miss the real hero, which is Jesus Christ. And it presents these antiheroes again and again, and we have four of them in our text here. And so what I want to do is I want to look at each one of those and how they cope with life in a fallen way, and then we're going to look briefly at the real hero, which is Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at Isaac. As the chapter starts, Isaac calls 
Esau into his tent and tells him he wants to give the patriarchal blessing. Now, if you listen to the text closely or read it, you realize that there is a a birthright and a blessing. The birthright was stolen by Jacob earlier, right? When he he, uh, said to his brother, hey, listen, give me the birthright and I'll give you this stew. So he has already gotten the inheritance part of this. This blessing serves the recipient not only in that way, but in a social way in the family. It gives them the preeminence in the family. But it also, the blessing also, has a covenantal, a promissorial component to it. And you get the hint of that in verse 29 when, it, when, when um, Isaac says, uh, Whoever curses you will be cursed, and whoever blesses you will be blessed. That should be start to sound familiar. It's said over and over again in Genesis, starting back in chapter 12. This is the promise of, that God gave Abraham of land, people, and the Savior of the world to come. In other words, this blessing has in it the, the messianic Line, the seed promise in it, which Isaac restates before sending Jacob off in chapter 28, and that God restates to Jacob on his way to Laban's house with Jacob's ladder, which we're going to look at uh, that dream he has next week. And here Isaac wants to give that blessing to Esau, not Jacob. Isaac wants Esau to have that promise. He wants Esau to be the line. Why? Because he loves Esau more. I want Esau to have that blessing. And Isaac knew he was going against God's will here. That's why he did this in secret. When a patriarch was going to bless the child, give the patriarchal blessing, he would always call all the family together. We saw that with Abraham when he called all his children together and he gives gifts to Keturah's children, but he gives the blessing to Isaac. We'll see it again in chapter 49 when, when Jacob brings his 12 children together and he, he gives the patriarchal blessing, but he gives the, the covenantal blessing to Judah. So they're always done with the whole family in the, in the family context. But here Isaac calls Esau in by secret. You always know when something's not right, when things are done in secret, right? So Isaac says, I'm going to give it to Esau. I'm going to do it in secret. See, Isaac knew what God had told Rebekah, that the older will serve the younger. Remember that blessing? Back in 25, 23, God had already told them, it's Jacob, not Esau. It's Jacob. Isaac knew this, but he favored Esau. He loved Esau. He wanted Esau. And so he decided to go against the known will of God and bless Esau. So here's one of the big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the Superman, Batman, and Iron Man of heroes, okay, who has every intention, every intention to go against the will of God. His will, not God's will. 
Isaac wanted it his way, not God's way. Anybody here see the movie Drumline? Drumline is about a talented drummer from the streets of Harlem called Devin Miles who receives a full-ride scholarship to Atlanta AT University. A full ride to, to play in the prestigious marching band they have there. Devin consistently, from the very beginning, deviates from the protocol outlined by the band director, Dr. Lee. He fails to read the band's rule book. He provokes fights within the band. He violates the philosophy of the band unity by showing off individually. Devin is always thinking of himself and not the band. He wants to perform the way he thinks is right. He is constantly pushing back against the rules of the band leader. And the picture that forms is that Devin wants to do what Devin wants to do. That is very foundationally and functionally how our hearts work. At the, at the very base level, that is how our hearts work. Not in all areas, but when something is really important to you, I want you to think about what's really important to you right now. Maybe one, two, or three things. What is foundationally important to you? Because in those areas is where you're going to have the temptation to make God's word optional. Those are the areas. You want, you want to grow as a believer? Ponder those areas that are of high importance to you, that give you meaning, purpose, and value in this life. Those are the exact areas where God's word is going to become optional. When rubber meets the road. And here we see that Isaac loved Esau. And he wanted Esau to have that blessing. And so God's prophetic word becomes optional to him. It's the same with us. If it's money, you'll sacrifice anything for money. If it's promotion, you'll sacrifice God's word for that promotion. If it's your reputation, you'll be willing to do bold-faced lies to protect your reputation. If it's love and relationships, you're willing to sacrifice your purity to have it. You're willing to marry outside the faith like Esau did to have it. If it's forgiveness, you're willing to sacrifice relationships that are near and dear to you because you don't want to forgive that person. When something is really important to us, we have a temptation to make God's word optional. Like Isaac. Then there's Rebecca. Little did Isaac know that Rebecca overheard this secretive plan. One can, I mean, imagine why that's true. Tents don't tend to hide an awful lot. And she did not like Isaac's plan. So she came up with a plan of her own for her own favorite, Jacob. She dressed him up in goat skins and served 
Isaac some stew that she made, and she told Isaac, lie your brains out. Lie, lie, lie. Now here we have to pause for a second because there's actually two reasons that Rebecca could be doing this. It could be that Rebecca wanted the blessing to go to her favorite, Jacob. Back in 25, chapter 25, verse 28, we learn that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So the motivation could be favoritism here. It could be. But I also want to put to you that it could be, it very well could be that she is trying to follow God's plan albeit wrongly, but she's trying to follow what God told her. The older will serve the younger. She might actually be trying to do the right thing, but in the wrong way. God doing God's will her way. Now, there are many commands of God, but because of our own sinfulness, many times we can go about them in the wrong manner. Here, Rebecca could have gone in and talked to Isaac, right? She could have opened the tent flap and and gone and and reminded him of the prophecy. Do you remember that? When when the twins were struggling in my womb and and I inquired of God and God said, you know, gave me a prophecy, but you have two nations inside you and the, the older will serve the younger. Do you remember that, honey? Could have gone in and done that could have explained in a loving way that, that the blessing is supposed to go to Jacob, honey, not Esau. But she didn't. Instead, she plans to use deceit and lies to accomplish God's plan. And God's plan will be accomplished here, but in the wrong manner. And that's not unlike our next anti-hero, Esau. Esau... Isaac certainly loved and favored Esau. But when you take a couple steps back and and just look at Esau as a person, as how Scripture presents him, he's he's not a very likable guy. First, he cares very little for his family. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He trades his, his inheritance for a bowl of stew. The inheritance was the privilege and the responsibility, the, the double portion that the eldest got so that they can keep the family together. They got more of the inheritance because so, it was their responsibility to care for the family, to keep them together. And Esau casts this aside for an impulsive hunger pain he had in his stomach. And he's showing that he cares very little for his family. And secondly, he cares very little for the faith. In chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, we see that he is going against his parents' will in marrying outside the faith. He marries not one, but two Hittite women. He cares very little for the faith of his family. And it says there that it made life incredibly bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What's interesting is that in the next chapter, he does it again. He marries outside the faith to Canaanite women. 
And, and there it's very interesting. He does it because he, in spite, to spite his parents, because the blessing was given to Jacob. He marries outside the faith to spite them. What type of man does that? Esau's pictured as a man who lived life as he desired, as he wanted, and he wants the blessing too. Do you get that? He lives living life as he wanted, and he wants the blessing too. He wanted the blessing without any of the sacrificial living that went along with it. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the hardest teachings in Scripture. We're so tempted to live like Esau. We're so tempted to live according to what we want and how we want, how we desire, and then to fully expect God's blessing in the end. You realize that? We want all the blessing of God without any of the sacrifice, without any of the suffering without living the life that Christ calls us to live. We will almost overlook scriptures like Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 15, 16, and 17 say this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. So far, so good, right? Love that. Heirs, great. Sons of God, love that name. But then Scripture drops the bomb right there. In verse 17, it says, All this is yours if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. We are sons if we share in his suffering. We are heirs if our life looks like Christ's life. We can call God Abba, Father, if we suffer like Christ did. In other words, the crown comes with a cross. It's inescapable in Scripture. Jesus said it like this in Luke 9, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, emblematic of suffering, and follow me. Paul said it like this in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in case you don't believe Jesus and Paul, Peter said it like this. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, in other words, second coming, when he comes again, you may rejoice with exaltation. It will be costly to not support the LBGTQ community. High schoolers, if you're going to Fellowship of Christian Athletes, it's going to be costly to you. 
to share your faith with Christ, to tell people that they need forgiveness for their sins is going to be costly for you. To tell people that the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life is through Christ will be costly for you. To stand up for male gender and female gender, it's going to be costly for you. To be simplistic about it, it will be costly whenever you live counter to the world tells you how to live. Or, to put it another way, the way Christ calls us to live. It will be costly to following Christ. The teaching in Scripture is clear and simple. No pain, no gain. No cross, no crown. No suffering, no inheritance. Now, you, like me, sitting back there this week, studying this, my flesh is going, there has to be another biblical interpretation here. There has to be, he must mean something else. There must be some wiggle room here. Where's the wiggle room? There is none. That's why I preface this whole thing with brothers and sisters. This is one of the hardest teachings in Scripture. If that sounds harsh, listen to how John Newton pastorally frames our suffering for Christ. And I hope this brings you some consolation as it did me. He writes, suppose a man is going to New York City to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before it gets to the city which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands while walking that last mile and blubbering about, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Finally, there's Jacob. The man who wrestled with God, man who God will actually rename Israel, the man who gave birth to the 12 tribes, if there's a life that is not whitewashed, it's Jacob's life. And here it's put on, on full display for us in this chapter. It's interesting, he has absolutely no moral objection to deceiving his father and to stealing that birthright. And what is even more startling is that he does not think of the consequences of that deception. Did you notice that? Now in verse 11, it's interesting. He does give a hesitation to his mother. But the hesitation is if, if the plan fails. Not if the plan succeeds. What if the plan succeeds? Just, just pause and think about that for a minute. The plan succeeds. Think of the consequences where his father is concerned, where his brother is concerned. And we're going to see that next week. What's life going to be like in that family? Is he going to lie to his father? He's, he's about to lie to his father. If you noticed, he lied to him five times. Five times. He finally gets to the point where Isaac says, Are you really Esau? 
And it says very, very succinctly, I am. He swipes the blessing from out of Esau's grasp. And then he's supposed to go on living like nothing happened, right? Good old happy family. He doesn't think of the consequences at all. He's oblivious to the consequences. Westminster Theological Seminary professor Ian Duguid writes this, Perhaps one of the most remarkable aspects of our fallen humanity is our ability to believe that we can sin and not get hurt. We are so easily convinced by Satan that our sins will not come to light that even, that even if it does, it won't hurt us. That's the lie that we believe. We're like Jacob when we're so blinded by sin and we rarely, if ever, think of the consequences of that. Sin makes us oblivious to the consequences. I mean, if there's one thing that Genesis has been teaching us thus far, it's that sin has consequences, right? You have the, the whole Garden of Eden narrative there. You, from, from Noah's curse to the Tower of Babel, from Abraham's shortcut with Hagar, that had terrible consequences, generational, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin always has consequences. Joe Taft is the founder of a business called Exotic Feline Rescue Center in Indiana. He takes in exotic cats that people can no longer care for. He took in a baby tiger and allowed it to grow up in his house. In 2002, Joe had a heart attack. And while recovering at home and in his weakened physical condition, he had a steel cage erected around his couch to protect him from the tiger. Joe spent the bulk of his recovery time caged in his own living room, eyeing the things from behind the bars while the tiger roamed freely around his house. He was a prisoner in his own home. That's what sin progressively does to us in our lives. It cages you. It will entrap you. It places you in bondage. That's the, that's the biblical word that is used for it. And many people never become aware of it. Many people never go through, they go through life never knowing that they're in bondage, that they're caged in by sin. That was you and me before Christ, right? As a matter of fact, that's what Paul is telling the Ephesian church in the second chapter when he says, listen, you were dead in your transgressions, do you remember? You used to live to gratify your, your sinful nature, do you remember? You were objects of wrath, remember? Before Christ? Good things for us to remember, brother and sister. And now it is our job, this side of the cross in our lives, to go tell other people that they are in bondage and they don't know it. They're living in a cage and don't know it. That they need someone to come free them. That they need someone with the key to the cage 
to come free them. They need someone who is brave enough to come into their house and face that tiger that's roaming around. They need someone who will break the yoke from around their neck. And that is Christ, the real hero. That's Christ. He's the real hero. He's not like Isaac who wanted his own will to be done. But like Jesus who said, I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Jesus said, my food is to do my father's will in John 4. We need a hero who is selfless, who is not focused on himself, but on doing his father's will. We need a real hero, not like Rebecca, who wanted to accomplish God's plan her way. But like Jesus, who came to fulfill God's plan God's way. Galatians 4.4 tells us what the plan is in 31 words. You want, to, you want to memorize something? You want to put something in your heart? You want to know what God's plan is? Memorize Galatians 4, 4 through 6, which says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those from under the law, so that they can be called the sons of God. You want to know what the plan of God is? God's plan, the plan from the beginning was to restore his children to relationship. His plan was from the beginning was to send his son to live under the law. You know what that means? That means that he obeyed God's law perfectly. What Jesus did was he did what none of us in this room can ever do, which is obey God perfectly. Without any shortcuts, like Esau, We need a real hero, not like Esau, who wanted the blessing without sacrifice. Jesus knew what our redemption was going to cost. Jesus knew that. Think about that. I think I've mentioned this uh, years ago. We had a a pastor come here in the summer, spent the summer working in the park, and then for his last Sunday here, he said, can I please sing a song? And I said, sure. And he sang a song that I'd never heard before. It was... um, I grew the tree. Anybody know that? And the, and, the, and the point behind the song was that God actually grew the tree from which the cross was taken. So when, when God planted that seed and made that seed grow, he knew his son was going to die on that wood. God had a plan to redeem us from the bondage, from the cage that we're in through Jesus Christ. He knew what it was going to cost, his very own life. And he was tempted throughout his life. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus was tempted to take the crown without the cross, right? In the wilderness with Satan, I'll give you all of this, just bow down before me. That's all you have to do. You don't have to die. That's all you have to do, Jesus. Or in John, when the people wanted to make him king that one time, and he knew it, and he, it says he escaped through them. He left. How tempting that would have been. And, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, his flesh was crying out, there has to be another way than me dying. 
But our hero said, not my will, but yours be done. We need a real hero, not like Jacob, who was oblivious to the consequences of sin. We don't need a hero like that, but we need a hero like Jesus, who was aware of sin's consequences, so aware that he sweat blood, asking the question over and over again, can this cup pass my lips? In other words, can we do it another way? Does it have to be death? He knew the consequences of sin was death, spiritual death, eternal banishment from God. You know what we call that colloquially? Eternal banishment from God. We say that that would be hell. And Christ experienced hell for us so that we don't have to. That's the gospel. Trusting in Christ's work and not my work. In his substitutionary death on my behalf. And you know where it all starts? It all starts right here with recognizing that we need him. You know, we don't tack this on to the service. This is not a ritual that we do because, well, the church has been doing it for 2,000 years. This is not something that we go, well, here's the bread and the cup again. I hope that you do not look at this table and see anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, this is the gospel displayed, gospel put on display, the gospel seen. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread. He said, look at the rip. This is my body broken for you. I am taking the penalty of your sin. I'm willing to die in your place. Do you accept this? That's the gospel call. Do, do you accept that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness? Do you accept that there's a penalty for your sin that needs to be paid? That's what this table is, is declaring. Elders, please come forward.